Hey guys, good morning. Today, as we draw towards the end of our series, questions Jesus asked that we ought to answer, we're going to look at something totally, completely, and based on history and personality, utterly out of someone's character. Now, to my wife, I say, no, Joan, don't get your hopes up. I'm not talking about me picking up my laundry or emptying the dishwasher. It's even more surprising and out of character than that would be. It's not the Dallas Cowboys winning a playoff game or the Mets making a good trade. It's even more unexpected than that. This morning, we're going to look at something highly unusual. Depending on how you count, statistically, the odds of this occurring are somewhere between, well, 1 and 4%. The oddity we're set to explore this morning? Jesus giving a direct answer to an unscripted and honest question. Here's what we've discovered. That's something Jesus rarely did. That's not the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Instead, believe it or not, answers weren't, but questions were. The four gospel writers, uh, in, in their time with Jesus or their research of Jesus, they record that he was indeed asked lots of questions, 183 of them to be precise, but he asked way, way more. He asked 307. And as we've been discovering, of the 183 questions he asked, or that, was, that were asked of Jesus, depending on whose count you go by, Jesus directly answered only somewhere between three and eight of them. Now, don't get me wrong, it, it, it's not like Jesus just blew people off. If, if, that's, if they asked Jesus a question, he was much more likely to give them an indirect answer than a direct one. For every time Jesus answers a question directly, he responds indirectly more than 20 times. Some of you know that Jesus, for example, faced a lot of questions from the religious authorities of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But most of their questions were not because they were intellectually curious, but instead they used their questions to try and trap Jesus. One time they were trying to trap him into um, saying something that they perceived would be against cultural norms and religious rules regarding a woman that had been married multiple times. And the question was, who would she be married to in the kingdom to come? To which of her husbands would she be married in the afterlife? And the irony is that this question was coming from the Sadducees, who as religious leaders did not believe in an afterlife. Well, how does Jesus, who knows their heart, respond? Quote, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures of the power of God? Hmm. Another time, the Pharisees, they, they come to trap him uh, between the Roman authorities and the religion of the, of the people. They ask, teacher, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus' response, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's an answer, right? But it's certainly not direct. Now, other times, when asked a direct question, Jesus would answer, well, he'd answer with a story or one of his famous parables. For example, in response to uh, his teaching on loving one's neighbor, he was asked by a lawyer, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus' answer to that question, well, it was a story. It was the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here's the deal. Often, when people do something that's totally out of their character, out of their norm, it's because they want something. There is, in my life, a high correlation between me bringing my wife flowers and me wanting her to forgive me. There's a high correlation between my kids cleaning their rooms and my kids wanting to borrow my car. And for Jesus, a direct answer is just like that. 
when he answers a question directly, because it's so out of character, he does so for a really important reason. We need to understand this. Now, I want you to know, two studies that I've looked at over these weeks conclude that Jesus only directly answers three questions. Now, Martin Copenhaver, in his book, Jesus is the Question, says he sees up to eight direct answers of Jesus's, but he concludes that four of those direct answers are into questions regarding the law, which would seem to require a pretty direct answer. Two of them, which Copenhaver counts as, uh, Copenhaver counts as direct answers, have to do with questions Jesus was asked by the disciples in preparation for the Last Supper. Answers, I would actually argue, weren't fully direct. You can check those out if you have some time. And so that leaves, even by that broad count of eight direct answers, only two questions remaining that Jesus answered, what are they and what do they matter? Well, one of them we'll be looking at together in the coming weeks as we approach Easter. Jesus answers for the first time directly, a question that up until this point he's avoided. After having been arrested and dragged before a council consisting of the chief priests and elders and scribes of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is asked by the high priest of the temple, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Well, Jesus' answer this time is direct and pointed as any you offers. I am. Jesus answers directly now for the first time. And why? Well, for two reasons. The first is because Jesus knows that all his answer all of it will, what his answer will initiate. All of the events that ultimately culminate in his crucifixion, death, resurrection, the one he had been preparing his disciples for. Jesus answers directly because, well, with you in mind, the writer of the Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You are that joy. He answers directly, knowing the cost, but he answers directly in order to willingly bear the burden of justice due you and I. But he also does so, so that in the future, there would be none of this silly debate about who Jesus thought he was. You see, Jesus did not see himself merely as a good teacher or a moral leader or a prophet. Jesus, by his own words, saw himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so that's one of those two remaining questions. As you can see, that's a super important question that he decided to answer very directly. Two words that no one could misinterpret or, or misunderstand over time. I am. Now, the last direct remaining answer is also super simple, almost curt, definitely cutting, but oh so important. It's an answer that Jesus gives to you and I for all of eternity, not to be misinterpreted or misunderstood, but to be an eternal reminder for all who would come after him. It's a really big deal. Now, let me, as I, as I prepare you for it, let me set the scene. It's a scene actually so important, it's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to pick up the story in Luke this educated Greek physician who set out to write an orderly account of Jesus' ministry. He writes that when Jesus called the 12 together, the 12 disciples, he gave them power and he gave them authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, guys, super important detail here that you can't miss. 
with whose power were these disciples going to go out and drive out demons and cure diseases? With, with whose authority were these 12 guys going to deal and heal sin and sickness? Well, they weren't going to do it on their own. They were going out with Jesus' power. He gave it to them. They were not going to. They were not capable of doing anything under their own authority, only His. Now, to make sure they understood this, that they'd remember this, he, he added, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Well, why would he say that? Why would he tell them to take nothing? Because they wouldn't need it. Jesus is telling them, I'll provide for you. I'll hold you and keep you. I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. You're not going to need anything else. You just go and trust me. Like Egypt, or like Israel being called out of Egypt, he was training them, training their faith. Just go, take nothing. And so they set out, and they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and, the he and healing people everywhere. Luke writes that when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, which I'm guessing caused some amazement, some stir and renown amongst the people because... Luke records, then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it. The crowds, the same crowds that had seen what Jesus had done and what these 12 uh, disciples with his, his power and authority had done, and they followed him. Now, crowd's an understatement. Luke records that the crowd was 5,000 men, maybe a, a total of 20,000 people. And it's right here. The famous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish take place. And now remember, the disciples all see it too. They don't just see it, they participate in it. They hand out the bread and the fish. At this point, Luke has recorded for all of those that would read what he put together, he's recorded these same disciples, well, they've seen Jesus heal from a distance, a Roman centurion's son. Luke, in fact, records that why he did that. Because Jesus, quote, was amazed at him, the centurion, and turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I haven't found such great faith even in Israel. They've seen Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead out of, why, compassion for her. They've gone out, they've healed people everywhere, they've fed 5,000. How the same way, the same way, how did they achieve these things? Through faith and the power and the authority of Jesus that would have been given to them. That's how they healed not their power, not their authority. Jesus is so, so, you see, they had seen lots of stuff. They had lots of reasons to believe in Jesus and his power and his authority. They have lots of reasons they, uh, to have lots of faith. And there'd be more. Same chapter, Luke says, this is so good. Luke says that Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him, and they went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Luke records the two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain for, well, for a mountaintop experience with God. They actually get to see Jesus talk with Moses, the most important figure in the history of Israel, the one to whom God had once himself called up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet and establish a relationship with his people. And they see him meet with Elijah, one of Israel's great prophets who, who they believed would return to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, 
Think this through with me, right? Just like in the Old Testament, when Moses' face changed and radiated on Mount Sinai when he talked to God and got the tablets of the commandment, same story, except this time Jesus' face and clothes did that very same thing. It is a very reminiscent story that every Jew trained in the Torah and the history of their people would have understand or would have understood so clearly hearkened back to the very establishment of their, of their people and of their religion. In fact, it's so amazing. It's such a powerful mountaintop experience. And maybe you've had these. That Peter, just in awe of what God is doing in him and around him, uh, he, and what he's experiencing, he doesn't want to leave. He tells Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up th- let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Maybe you've had those kind of experiences. Jesus, let's just stay up here, up on this mountaintop of God experience. Why leave? I like it here. Your presence is so rich here and tangible here and felt. Jesus, you know what? Let me build you a tent right here. And I love... I love what Luke writes next, in parentheses, he didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what he was saying. You know why? Because it seems uh, we're always called down from the mountaintop. Moses was, Peter and James and John were, and, and so are we. Mountaintop experiences with God are amazing, and they're powerful, and they're, they're transformational. But in this world, they serve a purpose, and the purpose is not on the mountain with God, but in the valley, serving the people of God. Now, walk with me through the story, right? Some of you know the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. He, too, is up there with God, face transformed and radiating, receiving the Ten Commandments from God, and, well, down below, the people of God who who too have seen God's faithfulness and power proven to them over and over. These are the people uh, on the bottom of Moses' hill who have witnessed God's power freeing them from captivity in Egypt by the way of the plagues. They saw God open the Red Sea for them to cross. They were living with food and water that God was miraculously providing for them in the desert day after day. They too, just like the disciples down at the bottom of Jesus, Peter, James, and John's mountain, they too had seen God demonstrate his power and his authority to them. But some of you might remember what was going on down at the bottom of the mountain of transfiguration for Moses. Well, it was a commotion, really. The people of Israel, God's people, well, while Moses, their leader, was gone, they had abandoned their trust in God and his power and his authority, and they decided to make for themselves an idol. And if you remember, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he comes down to quite a commotion. Well, guess what? This should sound familiar. Luke says as they came down the mountain, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as, excuse me, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. Now, hopefully you guys see the parallel here, up on the mountain with God, down the mountain to a commotion. And so just as Moses asked Aaron, what have you done? Jesus asks his disciples, what are you arguing with them about? Well, the man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at his mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. Teacher, I bought you my son. I heard how you healed. I heard how your disciples healed. But Jesus, I must have gotten some kind of second-rate disciple here. 
because I asked them to drive out the Spirit like they used to, but, but, but they can't. They could not. It's funny, this next line, which is a, a very tough line from Jesus. I always kind of imagined when I read it that, uh, that it was focused on the people all around arguing, but I don't think it was. I think it was focused at the disciples. You see, Jesus, when he hears this, he, did, he doesn't call them over and show them how to do it or remind them how to do it or, or what they did wrong. He doesn't say, oh, you know, this is, this is a tough spirit. It's, it's above your pay grade. Only I can take care of such sin and sickness. No. Hear this now because it's strong. He, Jesus looks and goes, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? I mean, he calls them unbelieving and perverse. That word there in the Greek means distorted, misinterpreted. You are the opposite of what you should be. And so Jesus says, bring your son here. Even while the boy was, was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And I'm sure they were especially the disciples. Now, Luke gives us, remember Luke, who looked in, into this a lot, he gives us a couple more clues as to what's happening behind the scenes here. Why these guys suddenly, they used to be able to do these things, but they no longer could. He writes that while everybody was marveling at all that Jesus did, that it, all that Jesus had just done, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. I mean, can you imagine one looking at the other going, yeah, well, you couldn't heal him, but I bet if I tried, I could have healed him. I mean, it's almost funny, right? In fact, they keep going. Master, said John, we saw someone drive out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. Forever is not against you, it's for you. You see, their thought process was, Jesus, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name. And again, that's what they had been given. His name, his power, his authority. That was the way they were supposed to do it. But they're not one of us, Jesus, so they're not like us, Jesus. So we tried to stop it because, you know, Jesus, this is really about, well, it's about us and our power and our authority and our position and our ability. And if word gets out on the street that it's not just the 12 of us that can do this, well, then who knows what might happen. Do you see what happened when Jesus was up on the mountain? What happened was that his disciples, his followers, not unlike Moses's, forgot whose power and authority that they went under, that, that ha had, that owned, uh, that they owed everything to. You see, this time their, their idol was not a golden calf. This time their idol, well, it was themselves. It was their own ability and strength and power and authority which in the end proved powerless. Which gets me to the question Jesus answered directly because it was that important an answer. Matthew records it. He, he tells us that after this whole scene played itself out, the disciples came to Jesus in private. They didn't want anybody to see them. And they asked, uh, why couldn't we drive it out? Now, guys, I want you to notice this is one of the 183 questions Jesus was asked. And this time it wasn't about the law. It wasn't a setup to try and trick him. 
And it was so, so important that he answered it as directly as he possibly could. He replied, because you have so little faith. Why? (laughs) Because you have so little faith. The New King James puts it even more bluntly. Why? Because of your unbelief. Why isn't it working? Well, because when you went out in my power, with my authority, trusting and believing only in me and on me, you had my power and my authority, and there was nothing you could not do. But you exchanged it. While I was up on the mountain, you got kind of full of yourselves down here. You started trusting in your own power, your ability, your plans and purposes and ways, and guess what? You got what your plans and purposes and ways can achieve for you. Mark records Jesus adding this to the answer. This kind, this kind of spirit can come out only by prayer. This kind comes out only as you lean into, commune with, walk with, rely on me. Guys, other than Jesus' answer to the temple priest of I am, this is the most direct answer he ever gave to a question he was asked. It was an answer to a question on the limits of what God could do in and with our lives, with your life. You move from belief in me to belief in yourself, Jesus seems to indicate. You've made your own abilities your idol, and you forfeited the power of God in your life. This is the power of belief, the power of faith in our lives, and Jesus wants to make sure that we understand it and we don't misunderstand it because we're tempted to make our own way through life. Down here, away from the mountaintop and the mountaintop experiences, we're tempted to take on life's difficulties, trials, circumstances, under our own power, with our own plans, for our own purposes. And Jesus is going, don't do that. It's a mistake. Now, it's important that this message be clarified a bit. And so Jesus does. Because if he just left it there, then every time things go astray for people, they would begin to wonder, well, maybe it's because they didn't have enough faith. They may wonder, maybe, maybe I haven't prayed enough or maybe I haven't believed enough. I need you to hear this. It's super important. That's not it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He goes on, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. You see... The size of the faith is not the issue. We know that because Jesus in the very next sentence says you could have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which you would describe as the smallest of seeds. It's not the amount of faith or the size of your faith. It's the focus of your faith that is at issue here. Tim Keller, in his book, Center Church, puts this so brilliantly, quote, it's easy to assume that being saved by faith means that God will now love us because of the depth of our repentance and faith. But that is to once again subtly make ourselves our own savior rather than Jesus. It is not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. I've shared this example with some of you before. Imagine two people boarding an airplane. One person has almost no faith in the plane or the crew and is filled with fear and doubt. The other has great confidence in the plane and the crew. They both enter the plane, fly to a destination, and get off the plane safely. One person had a hundred times more faith in the plane than the other did, but they were equally safe. Why? Because it wasn't the amount of their faith, but the object of their faith 
the plane and the crew that kept them from suffering harm and arriving safely at their destination. Saving faith isn't a level of psychological certainty. It's an act of the will in which we rest in Jesus. We give ourselves wholly to him because he gave himself wholly for us. Jesus' concern is not that your faith is minuscule. Jesus' concern is that your faith is misplaced, that you've placed your ultimate belief in, well, in you, your talent, your achievement, your performance, your intellect, your savings, your 401k, your, your health, or, or maybe your friends, your past, your pension, your parents, or even your pastor. And misplaced faith leads to impotent followers. That's what happens over and over in the scriptures, in the story of God's people. They forget God and they believe, they begin to believe in, put their faith in, their ultimate allegiance in themselves or others. Israel did it. They were always trying to go back to Egypt. The disciples did it. We do it too. And we suffer all the same consequences, fear and doubt and worry and spending our lives chasing after the wind. Why? Why? Well, Jesus would say simply, it's because you have so little faith. Now, I, I want you to know, there's no shame in this. It is at one level the human condition. It's the struggle of both sinner and the saint. Thus, this direct answer from Jesus. Most believers, no doubt. Billy Graham, as an old man, near 90, when asked in a television interview if he believes that after he dies, he'll hear God say to him, well done, good and faithful servant, he pauses. And he says, after a surprising little inner struggle, I hope so. Martin, Martin Luther, the, the champion of justification by faith, was approached for help by an elderly woman troubled by doubt. Tell me, he asked her, when you recite the creeds, do you believe them? Yes, most certainly. Then go in peace, the reformer said. You believe more and better than I do. Elie Wiesel, when asked to describe his faith, used the adjective wounded. Quote, my tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart, and I would say that no faith is, is as solid as, as a wounded faith. John Ortberg wrote, I believe and I doubt. The razor's edge runs through me as well. And so, what do we do? How do we resist the temptation to come down off the mountaintop experiences with God and not move to faith in ourselves? How do we move towards faith, as small as it might be, towards God, away from ourselves and our stuff? Well, the scriptures are replete with the example. We must, we have to, it's mandatory that we don't forget that we remember the Lord our God that we know he exists and that he keeps his promises because otherwise we place our faith in the wrong people or places or things. God tells the patriarchs of the Old Testament, he tells the nation of Israel over and over and over again, build an altar here so you can remember what I did at this place. Moses' final farewell to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy is essentially a long book about asking Israel to remember. The Psalms are loaded with Israel's story and God reminding them over and over and over again of his trustworthiness. I can't begin to tell you how many times God begs the people of Israel to remember over and over again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Which is why in the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says, now faith 
is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about we do, what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So, Jesus is saying, you need faith, we need faith to believe, and what does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that we're confident in what we hope for and assured about what we don't see. But the key to understanding that is that our faith is based on something. Next verse. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Understand, guys, our faith, our belief, our hope is not based on on wishes, but on evidence. I would argue on science. Why do I have faith in God's being and promises? Well, because I've seen evidence over and over and over of God's being, and I've seen evidence of him keeping his promises. I don't believe in God and his promises because I have faith. I have faith. I believe because I have evidence of God being God and that he keeps his promises. This is why Jesus was so upset when he came down the mountain. It's like, oh my gosh, guys, how much more do you need? Gosh, I I can't believe you're still trying to do this with your own power again. And so here to the Hebrews, the writer goes through this long list. Some of you know it. Uh, It's called in the scriptures, the heroes of the faith. About, about their faith in action. He talks about Abel and Noah and Isaac and Abraham and how God kept all of these seemingly crazy promises to them and that because of this evidence, the audience should have faith that God exists and will keep his promises to them. Now, we need to go through that list, but we need to do something even more. We need to go through our own faith stories of how God has given us evidence of himself and how he's kept his promises to us. We need to create our own list of evidence seen and promises kept. We don't believe in God because we have faith. We have faith because of what we've seen and experienced with, through, and by God. This is so important because otherwise we forget and we start living life on our own terms. We come down off the mountain and we start a commotion. Your power is in your faith, and your faith is based on the fact and evidence of God in time and history, in in your life and in creation. Israel forgot. The disciples forgot. Don't forget. I want to challenge you this morning. Look back on your own story. How did you get where you are today? Look for his hand and his guidance. Look for evidence in creation, which is is everywhere. And look for his hand in your life. You remember that time when the phone call came, when when you'd given up, or the check came in the mail right when it had to, or the job came through when you didn't expect it, or the friend told you to to go here, or the family member challenged you on that? You have to remember why you believe or you'll forget and you'll begin to transfer that faith to someone or something else. You'll lose all of your power. See, you need an evidence and a promise list or you're gonna forget when you come down from the mountaintop of experience. I started working on one this week. Evidence, well, if you assign probabilities to all of these components that you need for a planet to sustain life, The likelihood I realized, discovered this week of the planet having all of these features is one thousandth of one trillionth. Are there hundreds of billions of stars out there that life could be on? Sure. But the odds of life are are a lot slimmer than the ones I just quoted. 
You realize our planet is at precisely the right distance from the sun to benefit from, benefit from its heat. A little closer, all the water would evaporate like Venus. A little bit further, everything freezes like it does on Mars. Everything on Earth is just, at the, is just the right size. Excuse me, Earth is just the right size so that it generates the right amount of gravity. Less makes everything weightlessly sterile like the moon. More gravity traps poisonous gases that suffocate life like on Jupiter. Evidence of God. Promises kept for me? Well, I met a guy on a golf course one time, which I, I went up and I was talking to him, told him I was looking for a church. He told me to check out a church I never heard of called Mendham Hills. You know, I never saw that guy again. I got my first job because somebody broke his leg skiing and happened to cancel his interview right while I was calling to try to get mine. One time when my infant daughter was facing surgery, I prayed that God would heal her right while we were in the doctor's office, right as he examined her. He did. Evidence of, promises kept. It's a list that all the sons and daughters of God need to keep because your faith matters. It mattered so much that Jesus actually answered the question as directly as he could. Why? The disciples asked, could we not do it? Because, Jesus said, you have so little faith. Friends, examine the evidence. Remember the promises. We can have the smallest amount of faith, but as long as we act on it like the passengers on the plane, as long as our faith isn't misplaced but rests on him and in his promises and not ourselves and our stuff, when we get that right, then even a tiny amount of faith in God can cause every mountain to move. Friends, Jesus meant what he said. With God, all things are possible. Now it's time for you to go move some mountains.